For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Looking to throw over the middle and into the end zone. Touchdown, Arizona State. We support each other's uh, teams the rest of the year, but during this game, all bets are off. That was all Keaton Slovis. Wow, what a play by him. One man to beat 15-10-5. Touchdown, a new NCAA record. Dante Pettis. Washington State has found a way to move the ball. It's incredible what we're seeing here in Pullman tonight. Touchdown, Oregon. They fake the handoff. Justin Herbert delivers a dart. I went to HR several times about how the Duck fans treat me. Touchdown, Utah. I mean, this is the Pac-12 we're talking about. The second week of Pac-12 football has wrapped up, and we have a big show for you today. Welcome, everybody, to Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network, along with Ryan Leaf, college football expert and extraordinaire. My name is Jonathan Rifkin. Delighted to be with you a little bit later on in the show. Adam Rittenberg, ESPN senior college football analyst and Sirius XM college football host, will join us to talk a little bit about the Pac-12 and National College Football as a whole. But before we get to do that, Ryan and I are going to go and recap the games across the Pac-12 slate from this past Saturday and a little bit of Sunday morning as well. Ryan, it was a wild weekend, not just in the Pac-12, but across college football. I think people weren't necessarily expecting that with all the cancellations. Uh, How do you feel? What are your takeaways from this weekend? Well, you know, you and I talked about it uh, with, with a lot of unknowns going into it. A, a day after our podcast, we found out both Cal, Arizona State was canceled. Utah, UCLA was canceled. Luckily enough, Cal and UCLA were able to get together within less than 72 hours and put together a ball game down in Pasadena on Sunday morning. Out of the five games that were played, all the underdogs covered. So... The only one that didn't was Washington State, and it was damn close. You and I had a lot riding on that uh, in terms of our betting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't know. Uh, the underdogs uh, played really, really well. Some won outright, Colorado. You know, I think a lot of people said I was silly to, to think they'd walk into Palo Alto and, and beat the Stanford Cardinal, and that's exactly what they did. They are, they are probably the most exciting team 
in the Pac-12 right now other than maybe the Oregon Ducks. Oh, I completely agree. And actually this morning, let's start there. Let's start with that Colorado-Stanford game because um, we knew it was going to be close. I had Stanford 28-27. You had Colorado 28-27. Colorado laid on the hurt in the first half. They ended up winning 35-32 to after a 16-point fourth quarter by the Cardinal. Now, Sam Neuer, who not a lot of people knew up until he started against UCLA last week, currently is number two in QBR in the Pac-12. So, if that's saying something, it's saying that this guy should be on your radar, right? At least in my opinion, because Stanford may not be the Stanford that we are accustomed to from the past, at least defensively. Offensively, David Mills turned it on in the second half. But overall, it's still a Colorado team rebuilding on the offensive end under a new coaching staff. And yet they were able to go and take one away from Stanford um, in a prolific way. What was, Do you think Neuer may be coming to his own a little bit at the helm of this Colorado Buffalo team? Well, I think he's done a tremendous job, but I, I would credit Darren Cheverini. He is the holdover on the offensive side from last year. He was a very close candidate for the head coaching job if Carl Durrell did not get it. Funny thing is, Carl Durrell was uh, Darren Cheverini's wide receiver coach when Darren played wide receiver at Colorado back in the 90s. Uh, and Darren's really done a tremendous job with Sam Neuer. He's allowed him to be who he needs to be, running the football, being physical, and then throwing it in play action that really gives him an opportunity to find bigger holes in zone defense. And Stanford just was not ready. Davis Mills, of course, missing uh, the entire week uh, because of the false positive, missing the game against Oregon, came out sluggish. uh, But he didn't look overly impressive. And when you're down that much and you throw all the time, you're going to have stats that don't really mean anything. But in the box score the next day, it's going to look like you had a had a decent game. He, he just did not look like the best quarterback in the Pac-12 coming back, which a lot of people thought him and Keaton Slovis were going to be fine for that for that post. Um, Stanford's in trouble. They really are. Washington State comes to town this week. They are in trouble. Uh, offensively, defensive, special teams got better. Jet Toner made his field goals this week. But uh, Stanford's in for a rough year. It's uh, six games. They make it to six games. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard for them to – to be over 500, to, to tell you the truth. And you mentioned Coach Chiverini over at Colorado. That story is insane. Of course, Mel Tucker pulled the old Willie Taggart, saying that he was committed that he was going to stay, ends up at Michigan State, and gets shut out by Indiana last week. Um, whether or not you think Indiana is actually deserving of a top 10. Now, I saw them in your top 10, Ryan. Um, so maybe they are deserving, and that Michigan State isn't that good. But Darren Chiverini, great story. Great start to his head coaching career at Colorado. Um, and, and honestly, I think if you're the Buffaloes, you're happy that you have him over Mel Tucker uh, at this point in the season. Colorado 2-0 and to begin this season. Lose, uh, they beat UCLA at home to open things up. Beat Stanford on the road in week number two of Pac-12 play. Let's rewind a little bit to the early game, USC-Arizona. This was a bad game for USC because they should not have won by four points. Maybe we were discrediting Arizona a little bit because we weren't sure what to expect from Grant Gannell and Kevin Sumlin's offense. We didn't get to see them because of their game cancellation. Uh, But they put up a heck of a fight, and that USC front seven just looks abysmal. They are giving up so much leeway to the quarterbacks. Jaden Daniels last week, who was 10 for 111, and this past week to Grant Gannell. Uh, Who are you more? Are you more concerned about USC or more surprised about Arizona? Well, if you remember correctly, I said that this game... uh, 
you know, if you see USC doesn't come out and, and take care of it early on, this game could get really interesting and Arizona could may find a way to get it done. I thought USC would find a way to win. And, and they certainly did. Uh, I was watching the game and, and when Arizona scored, I said I, to myself out loud, I, I said they scored too quick. And that's exactly what happened because the defense couldn't stop Keaton Slovis. What was interesting is Keaton Slovis looked like he could not throw a spiral for about three and a half quarters. And then you get him into the two-minute drill, those last two drives, and he's zipping it around there. Got lucky again with the tip ball. Probably should have been a pick on the sideline there that could have ended the game for the Wildcats with a big upset win, but they didn't get it done. Two weeks in a row versus Arizona teams. Uh, Keaton Slovis got a tip in his advantage. Uh, he must be living right. They get a chance to go to Utah this weekend. Hopefully that game gets played. They haven't won there since like 2012, I believe. So it should make for interesting. They have not played well defensively. They've struggled offensively early. They are exactly like Mike Leach type of air raid offenses. They are not physical when they need to be on third down, fourth down, when they need a yard, they need two yards. They're just not getting it done right now. So USC's fourth down efficiency has been abysmal. Uh, they went for it, what was it, six or eight times in week one. They went for it a handful of times last week. The air raid doesn't call for a fourth and short uh, a playbook offensively, right? Or even they they struggled in first and goal and, and the goal, first, second, third, it doesn't matter. Do you think that the air raid is actually hurting USC in these short yarded situations because it's sort of now make it up as we go along. It doesn't seem like they're totally comfortable trying to pound that rock and get those short yardage for the line to gain or even for a touchdown. Well, I'm not worried about the backs. I think the backs are physical. It's the old line. When you're going backwards for the majority of the game, I've always said that in the air raid, offensive linemen go backwards. They're always in pass sets. They're not physical. And then all of a sudden you ask them on fourth and one or third and one or, you know, goal-to-goal situations where they need a yard or two, you're asking them to go forward all of a sudden. It's, it's not in their DNA because they haven't practiced it. You have to practice it. Uh, the best thing about what the Air Raid did with Gardner Minshew a couple years ago is Gardner simply was more physical, and he told Leach that, hey, when it's third and one and fourth and one, I'm going under center. I'm going to go under center, and I'm going to quarterback sneak it. And they did it. For whatever reason, Leach listened to Gardner Minshew and they did that. Next year with Anthony Gordon, they never once went uh, under center. It was shotgun the entire year, and they were abysmal uh, in short yarded situations. That cannot happen to a USC team that needs to impose their will up front. If they're not able to do that, a Utah team that's very physical could maybe figure out a way to beat a team that struggles out the gate like they have the last two weeks. On a national scale, who would you equate USC to? Because to me... If you pit them against the heavy hitters nationally, or even, I don't know, Texas A&M, I guess these are heavy hitters out of the SEC, they're going to get absolutely destroyed with the way that they're playing right now. Um, is that a perception that we're getting because they just have historically played down or recently have been playing down to their opponents? Or do you actually think this USC team, we've been overrating, overrating, and that if they decided, not that they decided, if they matched up against a team outside the conference that's highly regarded with some play under their belt that's been playing well, uh, it wouldn't even be close, or they would really struggle to try and get a win there? I think they would struggle against anybody in the top 15. Um, I, I probably equate them to Coastal Carolina right now in terms of talent. Um, that's true. He's un they're both undefeated. Um, the difference is Coastal Carolina is taking care of business most of the year. I also thought maybe a BYU comparison since BYU is still undefeated. But BYU has dominated people. 
Yeah. If Boise and USC played right now, I don't necessarily know if that's a, a for sure win where BYU pummeled them 51 to, to 10 or something like that. Yeah, so, 14, yeah. you know, the Pac-12, other than Oregon, in my opinion right now, doesn't hold a candle to anybody else. Oregon is their only answer, and they cannot afford to do what they did in the first half against Washington State, against any more teams this year, or the committee's just not going to take a look at the Ducks or anybody else from the Pac-12. My favorite uh, analytic comes out every Monday morning, the All-State Playoff Predictor, because I think that right now it is just so full of it. Um, it has Oregon at 27% to make the college football playoff. It has SC at 7%. In between them, Alabama number one, obviously, Ohio State number two, Notre Dame and Clemson round out the top four. Wisconsin is still at 41%. A Wisconsin team that has two games under their belt, I know that they dismantled, I mean, absolutely dismantled, throttled, I mean, use every synonym of that term that you need for, Michi- for Michigan this past weekend. Um, is are, Would they really get the benefit of that with only four more games on their schedule if they play them all out over an undefeated Oregon team? Because to me, week to week... It just it just feels like if Oregon can find a way to just win out this thing, I know the Pac-12 isn't impressive. It doesn't look like the South is going to be. Um, is it going to hold a top ten or top twelve team by the time the college or the Pac-12 playoff or Pac-12 championship, excuse me, ends up being played? How I mean, is Wisconsin really going to be favored? A one-loss Wisconsin in the championship to Ohio State really going to be favored over a no-loss Oregon team just because this conference is so weak? Maybe um, they might. I, I don't. I don't think it's going to matter. I think. I think this is how the college football playoff goes after everything shakes out. Plays. I think Alabama's the number one seed. I think Ohio State's the number two seed. I think Clemson's the number three seed, and I think Notre Dame's the number four seed. Texas A&M at five, Wisconsin at six, or it could be Oregon at six. Uh, that that's the way I, I I see it shaking out when it's all said and done. I think that uh, Alabama beats Florida in the. Uh, in the SEC championship, I think it's going to be a great game. I think it's going to look very similar to LSU, Alabama a year ago. First one to 55, I think, wins that one. Um, I think Clemson gets a uh, hold of Notre Dame in the in the ACC championship. And and I think they both get in. I think they do. I think they both get in. And they don't play each other again unless they win for the national championship. Alabama plays Notre Dame. And we get a rematch of Ohio State and Clemson uh, in the national semifinal that we had a year ago. That was so good. So that's the way I see it playing out. Now, of course, you know, Florida could upset Alabama. I had a different chaos reading this weekend. You could have three one-loss SEC teams. You could have two one-loss ACC teams. You could have uh, undefeated Ohio State, one-loss Wisconsin, undefeated uh, um, Oregon. You could have undefeated BYU and Cincinnati. And, you know, what what do you do there? And so that, that, that will really be interesting. Next, Texas A&M could have the, the one loss to Alabama. I think they're outside looking in no matter what happens. But uh, it could be real chaos for the committee. They really honestly should take a look at, A, not meeting in person. There's no reason to meet in person. Absolutely the worst idea you can think of. They're all elderly. And <laughs> if a, if a freaking outbreak happens in there, they may just die down there going through who's going to get in the college football playoff. A, don't go there and meet together. Do it by Zoom. It's pretty much what you do while you're there anyway since I've gone through this process. Secondly, expand it this year. Just just too many unknowns. Uh, it's a mad dash to see how many games you can get in by the time they make a final decision. You know, some teams may only have six games played. Some may have five. You figure out who the best eight are. Let it roll this year. Just let it roll this year. You can pull it back. I know people are going to 
going to be excited and see, see an upset. BYU upsets somebody in the first round or something like that. You can go back to four next year if you have to, if, if, if the pandemic hasn't subsided. But those are the two main things I think the committee really needs to take a look at this, this fall. So, so let's move forward here to the, to the Oregon-Washington State game. The, the one breath of hope for the Pac-12 to get a team into the college football playoff versus a team that I think we're all pleasantly surprised by in Washington State. Jaden Delora had another really solid game, 25 for 39, 321 yards, two touchdowns, that front seven for Oregon. Decided to pressure him a little bit in that second quarter. Kayvon looked absolutely gassed, though, um, and he, they took it they being Washington State took advantage Oregon pulled away in the fourth with 22 big points but up until that point it was Washington State's game what'd you like from your Cougars throughout I mean throughout the game overall Oregon just their talent ended up shining at the end of that game to to pull out the win um and the spread I want to add because man was I on the edge of my seat with that 10 and a half point spread um you know, give, give me your takeaways from Washington State and then we'll, we'll move on to Oregon and, and how we see them moving forward uh, after this game well, I think they, they came out firing, you know. Uh, they got a couple field goals rather than touchdowns when they got some of those big turnovers. Um, offensively, they didn't turn the football over. And as a freshman quarterback against a seasoned uh, coaching staff for Oregon and that defense, I thought that was tremendous by Delora not to, not to turn it over. They didn't have Max Borgie. Um, they were limited on offense and still, you know, stayed in the game. The difference was matchups and speed. That's what it was. The matchup there at the end, uh, where they get the um, where they get the big long touchdown on on third and short, um, up against a, a defensive end. That's that's just that's just a mismatch. And you got to give Moorhead, the new offensive coordinator for Oregon, for finding that mismatch and, and taking advantage of it. Tyler Shaw played as good as uh, you can imagine. He you know there was a couple mishandled handoffs. Um, the interception was just. You know, it was a mistake. You don't, you don't throw it high on screens and coverage like that. But uh, uh, in the second half, he settled down. He looked, he looked as good as Justin Herbert did in any game last year when they had to finish things out. So, I, if that game had to go, if that game went on for an infinity, I think that Oregon probably is always up two scores at least. I think it just continues to go that way. Um, they were just too physical. Um, I think, I think their conditioning was just better down the stretch. And uh, for the Pac-12, it was good that they. They won in that, that kind of fashion late. Uh, a lot of people don't respect Oregon as much as, as I do. Um, I, I give a lot of credit to Washington State because of what they were able to do against a very good football team on Saturday night. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, Washington State always has uh, something up their sleeve against Oregon. Uh, shout out quickly here to Aiden Hector uh, and to, uh, oh, who's, uh, Renard Bell, the the two phenoms, honestly, for this game. Renard Bell, 10 for 158 and a touchdown uh, for Washington State, and Aiden Hector had those three turnovers, the forced fumble that he ended up also um, returning. He had an interception. He had a couple of tackles for loss. Both Southern California guys, one from Cathedral, one from Temecula, so shout out to both of those. Very, very positive game, um, I think, from from both the, the linebacking core for Washington State and then as well from Renard Bell out of uh, the wide receiver slot. We're edging on Adam Rittenberg hour here on the podcast. I do want to say for Oregon, um, Tyler Shuck didn't look super comfortable running the RPO 
that was a fumble there in the miscommunication with C.J. Verdell. It's not something that we saw a ton of from Marcus Arroyo. I'm not, I mean, Tyler Shuck didn't play in that offense consistently, so it's not like he was accustomed to one offense and now has to readjust to a new offense. Um, but like you said, he settled in the second half, that fourth quarter. They went away from it a little bit. They were more ground and pound, but there were a couple of RPO plays that he felt it seemed like he was a little bit more comfortable with up the seam. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Moorhead, his play calling is good. Now it's just about execution and Shuck overall. Um, I think that he will turn into the guy who will execute consistently for this team. All right, two more games to go. The evening game, Washington, Oregon State. What a game. What a way for the Washington season to kick off than with a special teams blunder that was returned for a touchdown by Oregon State. This became viral and an, a, a humorous joke throughout the, the college football Twitterverse. Ryan, neither of these up-and-coming head coaches in Jimmy Lake or Jonathan Smith seem to really unleash their quarterbacks they didn't seem to really trust them I don't know maybe it wasn't trust maybe it was just within the playbook um but the run game was really prevalent 34 carries for Oregon State in limited offensive possessions 51 carries for Washington including three guys with over 40 yards rushing and two guys with over 10 carries are we going to expect to see a more uh a, a more run offensively inclined Washington State Husky team. I know that they've had great running backs in the past, but they've always had quarterbacks that they still throw the ball 35 to 40 times. Um, Dylan Morris may need some time to adjust as a freshman. Is this a Washington team we will see run the ball more than we've been accustomed to? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they've always run the football. I mean, you look at the guys, Ahmed and uh, and Gaskin, those guys were special. Um and, you know, I think the passing game complemented what they did running the football and their offensive line was so physical. So I think, yeah, you see a lot, a lot of that this year with McGraw and that offense. And on the other side, Oregon State has Jamar Jefferson, who might be one of the best backs in the league. In the league. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to feed that guy. Um, There's a lot of controversy in this game. Late in the game, uh, spots by the officials, not enough cameras available to get a true review of where those things happen. Oregon State had a really good chance of winning this game. You know, high scoring in the first half, and then just absolutely, you know, shut down defensively by both teams in the second. I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, I think both teams are going to stumble along the way. Washington a little bit uh, better. Uh, you know, Dylan Morris is going to come along slowly, but I wasn't overly impressed with 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 the Washington Huskies, and I think that opens up an opportunity for Apple Cup week this year. So hopefully that that plays out. I'll be excited to see what they what they bring to the table next week, but uh, uh, they got the win. Jimmy Lake gets the win in in his first game. Jonathan Smith now is zero two in a year where, you know, last year they were a, a win away against Washington State of of going to a bowl game for the first time in a long time. And uh, you know, anybody can go to a bowl game this year, really. But it'd be great if they could get to a place where they were four and three where they had a winning record. I think that would boost their confidence going into his fourth year and hopefully a full season next year. But uh, right now they're, they're struggling a little bit offensively. And of course, defensively uh, they became a lot stouter in the second half, which has got to please him looking at film this week. Yeah. I was going to say that defense really stepped up. And when you're on the field for 37 minutes, and two opening offensive possessions, it's not easy. Um, and, and I was impressed with Oregon State's defense as well. Even though there was a targeting call and one of their better defensive backs was ejected, they still stepped up uh, and they gave their offense an opportunity to win. Whether you 
we can go into the whole controversy. And I'm, I think on Thursday, there's been a lot going on in the LA Times about this conference. Um, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding Larry Scott and how things have been handled. Um, and, and maybe we'll uncover some of that on Thursday. But we're running out of time here. Again, Adam Rittenberg will join us in just a few minutes. But let's wrap up the recap here. The final game, Sunday morning, a little Pac-12 brunch action. Um, UCLA and Cal both had their original games canceled within three hours they were able to um, logistically pull it together to get a 9 a.m. start on a uh, Sunday and then UCLA put their gas to the their foot on the gas and just took it to John, uh, Justin Wilcox and Cal they won 34 to 10 the Cal defense was not anything that we uh, that I would expect from a Cal defense and you and I were texting and you pointed out that Chase Garber's number one didn't feel seem very comfortable but number two his arm uh seem to have either been depleted or he just hasn't improved. Uh, what are your concerns with Garbers and Cal overall after this game? Well, let's let's start by stating this. Two years ago, UCLA put a whooping on uh, Cal uh, as well. And UCLA would go on to win three games. So let's not you know jump to conclusions. First game, they've been in quarantine. Most of uh, uh, they took a game on a 72-hour notice. So did UCLA, but UCLA had already played a game. Uh, offensively under a new offensive coordinator and Bill Musgraves, Chase Garbers looked lost at times. Um, his arm, thro- his throwing motion looked labored and uh, his skill position players weren't really making plays. Defensively, I was surprised. Cam Bynum looked as good as I expected Cam Bynum to do, but who was going to replace Evan Weaver? You know, is it going to be Coin Dang? Is he going to be a guy that is a 150, 180 tackle guy like like Weaver and, and Kanashik were? We don't know yet, but uh, I think it was good for Justin Wilcox and this team to get a game in. It's disappointing that they didn't play better, uh, but they have a game under their belt, and I think you'll see a lot better version of the Cal Bears next time they step on the football field. Yeah, I agree. Extenuating circumstances surrounding this game. UCLA was already going to host Utah, so it wasn't like they really had to change anything on their logistical end. Um, there wasn't a lot of tape on, there was probably no tape on Cal, honestly, because they didn't play a game, so they probably went into it blind. Uh, and Cal just did not seem well adjusted to the circumstances, the start time, or the overall situation. So UCLA pulls out the 34 10 victory. We'll talk about um, the upcoming. Pac-12 schedule for week number three in the conference on Thursday and Adam Rittenberg in just a moment is going to join us so quick recap USC Oregon Colorado Washington and UCLA all pull out victories this week which I believe Ryan you were four for six am I on your predictions uh four out of five four Um, right so you know I just took the underdogs all last week and that that's what I mean that's all of them cover so if you parlayed all of those in a big bet, you would have had a good week financially. <laughs> I had a pretty good week financially anyway. My <laughs> NFL picks, my NFL picks were, were pretty damn good too. Thank you, Cliff Kingsbury, for not going oh, yeah. for that extra point. Bills plus two and a half. Yeah. Crazy with that DeAndre Hopkins catch. All right, Adam Rittenberg, ESPN College Football Insider, joining us next right here on Believe in the Pac-12. As promised, ESPN senior college football writer and serious XM college football host Adam Rittenberg joining believe in the pac 12 with Jonathan Rifkin and Ryan leaf. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, guys, it's great to be with you. It's fun to talk some pac 12 finally. <laughs> well, getting into the pac 12 side of things, we, Jonathan and I have been discussing, uh, you know, coaching and there's, you know, multiple coaches that are on the proverbial hot seat this year. 
but I've been really adamant about how how the optics around firing a coach during a pandemic when athletic directors and, and um, athletic departments are, are hemorrhaging money, what it would look like to get rid of a guy and have to, you know, you know, pay a buyout and, and millions and millions of dollars. And then we watched this weekend as Will Muschamp is the first domino to fall and he's got a $15 million buyout. How do you think the optics would look and is it something that because in the SEC football is just bigger than everywhere else that the likes of Clay Helton, Chip Kelly, Kevin Sumlin in the Pac-12 can maybe skate by this year with not a great season because of those optics I just talked about? Yeah, I think you laid it out really well, Ryan. I think everyone was waiting to see who would be the first Power 5 school to make a change, if anyone was going to, because of those reasons, how bad it looks. And, you know, not surprisingly, it's a school in the SEC. And, um, you know, they, they ultimately felt like they, you know, going to market now with a, a change that they felt was inevitable was, uh, was a smart move, even though it certainly doesn't look great given the amount of money that all the athletic departments were losing. I mean, there's a couple of different factors in the Pac-12. It's a shorter season. Um, you know, you know that uh, at most these coaches are going to have seven games before that type of decision is likely to be made. Most likely it's going to be less than that. We already know at Arizona it's going to be less than that with Kevin Sumlin. Uh, UCLA was able to salvage their second game. So uh, and, and it played very well, I think, against Cal on Sunday. So um, but, and, and again, you look at Chip's contract situation, even Clay's contract situation at, at USC. It, it's very difficult to make that change even in a normal environment, much less one where the where the financial constraints are, are as they are during the pandemic. So um, I, you, you never say never. I've been told throughout this offseason, don't expect much of a carousel. And then we get South Carolina. I think there'll be some additional moves in the SEC, at least one more that's coming. And then we'll see what happens in the Pac-12. So I don't think it's going to be a robust coaching carousel, but I, I certainly would not rule out the possibility of, of some moves being made. Adam, when you look at the landscape, um, of the call of college football in general, everybody is talking about the the Big Ten and the SEC. Excuse me, the Big Ten and the ACC. We know Alabama. Uh, there are a lot of Florida fans out there that are hoping that Florida gets a shot at at the college football playoff. Uh, ESPN after every Sunday releases the playoff predictor. Wisconsin, and you mentioned limited amount of games. Wisconsin's played two games this season, yet they find themselves at 41% to Oregon's 27%. How much of this playoff predictor should we take with a grain of salt, and how much of it is actually leading us in the direction of a college football playoff that we should expect to see? Right. Well, yeah, why is Wisconsin in the playoff predictor getting that percentage? I mean, the, the, the reason is that they're heavily favored to win the Big Ten West division, and then they would have the opportunity to beat Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. Now, they haven't done that at all. Um, they've, they've repeatedly failed against Ohio State, but they would at least have that chance. And with a Big Ten championship, even if it's only you know, seven or eight games total, uh, I think that they would be looked at as a pretty strong playoff contender. The problem for Oregon is that you don't have an Ohio State to beat in the Pac-12 championship game, even if both teams get there with perfect records. So that's, I think, why that is what it is. But, but there's, there's a, so much fluidity, as you guys know, given the uncertainty of games and cancellations in these two leagues and the fact that Wisconsin really has no margin for error. I think if it wants to get to the Big Ten championship game in terms of playing its remaining games, um, Oregon, fortunately, has been able to get in its first two games, and, and we'll see if that continues. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love the playoff predictor, but in a year like this, 
I think it's uh, it's certainly something that, that you uh, that you look at and, and, and enjoy, but but realize that it could certainly change. This conference uh, was last to the party um, in terms of when they came back to play. Uh, they were the most safe in terms of waiting for more data, more information. They're going to have the, the least amount of games played or at least attempted to play. And for the most part, uh, ha have been with, with, withheld from the college football playoff since its inception, other than the Oregon Ducks uh, that one year. Is there a team, and, I, and I'm speaking specifically probably about the Oregon Ducks, because of their ability to recruit and what kind of team they're building out there with Mario Cristobal, is that is this Oregon team an undefeated 7-0 Pac-12 champion? Uh, can they overcome, let's say, the likes of a uh, one-loss Notre Dame team to Clemson in the ACC championship? Or is it, is it kind of a mute point right now that, that uh, they're going to be left out of the party in the consolation prize, which I think is a great one, is, is going to be the Rose Bowl once again? Well, yeah, I mean, the Rose Bowl is a semifinal, so it may not be the Rose Bowl this year, but I think it's uh, – um, but, but, you know, again, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens if Oregon runs the table and does so in impressive fashion. You know, they have two double-digit wins so far. Um, they have some opportunities uh, to, to obviously increase and improve their resume down the line. I mean, the ideal situation for Oregon is to face an undefeated USC, for example, in the Pac-12 championship game so that you're really boosted by that win. And you need some help, honestly. I think you need Notre Dame to lose a game before the ACC title game to ensure that whoever loses that game will have two losses against your zero loss. Um, you, you want Alabama to win in the SDC to take, uh, I think, really any chance of Florida uh, out of the mix. You, you ideally want Texas A&M, which is sitting there, you know, very, very highly ranked right now, to lose a game, uh, a second game. They already have one loss to Alabama. So those are the things you want to be rooting for. But the key that you can take care of business is to get to the Pac-12 championship undefeated, play a really good team, beat that team, and then you really put some pressure on the committee, which has no evidence of one league versus another because nobody really played non-conference games, at least <laughs> Power 5 versus Power 5. So you know, it's a shame because I would have loved to have seen Oregon against Ohio State in Eugene with a packed Autzen Stadium this year. Unfortunately, that's not happened. But uh, Oregon is still a good team, and they have an opportunity – to, uh, to at least to make things interesting for the committee. This committee we talked about, you know, they've been adamant that, you know, it's, it's four teams and, and that's what we're sticking at. In this, this year, 2020, um, I, I just made reference to Jonathan about two things I need from the committee this year. A is don't meet in person. They're adamant about meeting in person, yet do not meet in person. You're elderly. Do not even give that an opportunity. Second, with all these unknowns, you know, Cincinnati, BYU, I, I think they, they, they find a way to expand it this year. Pull it back. I know it's going to be hard to pull it back if, a, if an upset happens, if Cincinnati upsets somebody or BYU upset somebody. But is this committee able to do that in this year? Or are we, are we set it with the form? We're just going to have to live with that and, and maybe be without some teams that probably could have given it a shot this year. Yeah, well, listen, I, I think if there ever was a year to be – experimental and flexible it's 2020 right because uh you know you, you know the bowls aren't locked in like they normally are and you don't have fans i, I think in most of these venues and, and and you know in some cases it's it's easier to put on a game in this environment but the college football playoff has been incredibly resistant to change 
throughout. I mean, even getting to a playoff was hard. And then they you know, really dug in on four teams. And so just, just knowing what I do about this sport and how long it takes to get change to happen, even though it would make sense, I think, in 2020 to expand it a little bit and, and obviously let everybody in because uh, the, the schedules and, and, and we see, we've seen cancellations today and, and games moved around, you know, it's going to continue. Um, so it's very, very difficult to get a, an accurate gauge on who the best four teams are. So I'd love to see an expanded playoff, but just knowing what I know and, and knowing the history of the sport, I am not expecting one. Adam, I have a two-parter here for you. You talked about how Oregon's best path is to face an undefeated USC team if they want to have any shot or an undefeated really good team, but it's going to end up being USC uh, in this scenario uh, to get to the college football playoffs. So my two-part question is this. Um, USC, to me, has two unconvincing wins, a 28-27 win against Arizona State and a 34-30 win at Arizona. Now, we may have underrated Arizona just because we didn't see them. Um, but again, to me, it feels a little bit unconvincing at USC. To not to mention the, the consistent Clay Helton uh, conversations that are going on nationally. I know you mentioned his contract, um, and, and I think that's a shared sentiment that he's probably safe for now. What does USC need to do maybe stylistically in each game, put up some style points and win convincingly. And where do they need to be for Oregon to beat them and get the benefit over the doubt over maybe a one loss, Wisconsin, a one loss, Notre Dame, a one loss, uh, or probably not a one loss, Florida. Um, one of these other teams being considered because USC to me does not look like a top 12, top 15 team right now. And that's probably where they need to be for Oregon to beat them to be in the conversation. Yeah, they, they don't, and, and they don't really look like a top 25 team, to be honest. I mean, talent-wise, they do. And, you know, Ryan and I have talked about this before many times. Like, there's just a sloppiness to their play, and it's been there for most of uh, – really since that, that great year with Sam Darnold where they went to the Rose Bowl and beat Penn State, is that they're just not playing to their talent level on a consistent enough basis. I mean, I was even at their game against Utah last year, a game that they won, but it was because Utah was uncharacteristically sloppy. It wasn't because USC was super clean. And so when you're seeing, you know, the struggles down in the red zone and some of the turnovers, the penalties were a huge issue against Arizona. I mean, they, they came back and won because they're better than Arizona. Like they should beat Arizona. Just like they're, they're better than Arizona state, but um, it, unimpressive. And I, I, again, I just want to see USC play cleaner, play to its talent level with poise um, and, and not have to, uh, you know, kind of do a magic trick every week to, to win games that, that, you, that you should win. I mean, our FPI is not a fail-safe predictor at ESPN, but, I mean, USC is heavily favored in, in the remaining games uh, FPI-wise. I mean, their crossover, I believe, is Washington State. It's, at, it's, in, it's in Los Angeles. It's a first-year coach in, in Rolo, who I really like, who I think will have his team ready to play. But USC is better than Washington State. They just need to play like it and take the mistakes out of their play. And that's been the hardest thing for Clay to engineer on a consistent basis. Adam, last question for you here on the show. The Pac-12 perception is consistently nationally pretty negative. And, and part of that's Larry Scott, financial mismanagement, uh, overall competition and level of play. What does the conference need to do? Now, I, I, it's to my understanding that the national perception of the conference still relies heavily upon the success of USC. With that being said, what does this conference need to do? Do they need to get a championship under their belt? Do they need to get consistency in the college football playoff? What does the Pac-12 need to do for football to squander this perception that they are the weakest of the Power Five conferences, if not maybe in the, in the conversation for bottom two? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple deal, guys, right? I mean, we can talk about, you know, television and revenue and all. I mean, Pac-12 re- facilities are great. They have a pretty good coaching roster. They spend money in their programs. They've got to win big-time non-conference games, and then they have to get into the college football playoff, and that's how you do it. You know, Oregon should, should have beaten Auburn last year. They didn't, and they didn't get in the playoff, and that would have helped. I mean, I don't know if they, if they beat a, uh, a Clemson or, a, or an LSU. Nobody's beating LSU last year. But to be part of the playoff on a more consistent basis, to win some of those signature non-conference games, you know, you get Notre Dame. Most years, two of your teams get Notre Dame in USC and Stanford. USC had that opportunity against Alabama that was wiped out this year. Ohio State, Oregon was wiped out this year. But that's how you do it. Um, I, I think, again, what Mario has done in Eugene is encouraging because they're recruiting at, an, at a level that's going to make them more competitive with the best teams in the other power conferences. You're absolutely right. USC has to be back as a nationally relevant program. UCLA needs to be upgraded. You know, Washington has had that, had that for a little while under Chris Peterson. We'll see what Jimmy Lake can do there. I see some improvement program like Cal, even though they didn't play well on Sunday, you know, that's encouraging. So you know, all is not lost for the Pac-12, but it is hard to see a path back to national relevancy without the USC Trojans, the, the team that has by far the most tradition, by far the most national championships, the most Heisman Trophy winners, the highest profile, everything. They need to be great again if the Pac-12 is going to get the respect that I know everybody wants it to get. Great stuff from Matt and Rittenberg, senior writer for college football for ESPN, Sirius XM college football analyst as well. Adam, this was awesome. Thank you so much again for taking the time to join the show. Yeah, you bet, guys. I enjoyed it. Thanks. All right, that'll about wrap it up. Special thanks to ESPN college football extraordinaire, Adam Rittenberg, for joining the show. Ryan Leaf, as always. My name is Jonathan Rifkin. Thank you so much for listening, guys. The numbers have been really good. Please continue to tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We'll be back on Thursday for more Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network. Enjoy the rest of your week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.